Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, climbing legend Conrad Anker speaks at the Outdoor Recreation Camp Kit Exhibit Opening at Utah State University. Anker talks about the history of the outdoor industry and the challenges of a changing climate for product designers. Thank you, Chase. I'm always like those introductions. They're like written. It's a combination, half your mom and half your aunt. And they're like, our offspring can do no wrong and they're always fine and there's going to be that. So I guess that is kind of true in there. But hey, thanks all of you. Here it is, first week of school, Friday afternoon, and you're in class. But you have a 3D three-day weekend coming up. There's all sorts of good things to do with that. So um, before we get rolling here, quick thanks to uh, Boone and the team from Grasshopper. We met at the airport, shuttled me up here. I'm glad we were able to piggyback this in here because it wasn't going to be till November or something later like that. So this is a great way to start this and uh, something that's really meaningful to uh, what I do. Advertising, um, Remembrance, three friends, plenty of friends that we've lost in the mountains, but David Lama, Jess Roskelly, and Hans York Auer um, a couple years back. But um, this is how I'll get started on this. This is um, Big Oak Flat, Central California is where my family's from, and this is my grandmother and grandfather. My grandmother ran the little restaurant and the um, kind of kept the ranch going, and my grandfather was a lineman for Hetch Hetchy Water and Power. So his idea of a good time off was to drive into Yosemite National Park with his pen protector and tie and to ostensibly find other heavy machinery operators and like meet up. <laughs> and Marge would be like, you talk to them all the time at work. You don't need to come out here. So <laughs> and then my dad here on the left, of course, he's like, I'm gonna haul the kids out into the woods and teach them all sorts of values and my mother being stoic, like I'm just getting eaten by mosquitoes. What do you have in mind? But this is how I got started. So this is uh, Dana Peak, the high point of Tuolumne County, then that's where my father's side of the family's from. And so probably 1972, my dad left the cassette of film in his desk until October, but um, this is all pre-Instagram, <laughs> actual square pictures. But this is what we did in, when we were young. And so this was um, 
starting out in places um, with burrows in the backcountry and just uh, spending two weeks of every summer. Of course, you transition into a teenager, see a growth sport, selling I know it all attitude, waffle stompers, flannel shirt. <laughs> and if we think about how much climbing equipment has changed and what was interesting in preparing for the presentation that I didn't have to like go out and find specific pictures of clothing that they're all kind of in there with everything. And so this is uh, waffle stompers, blue jeans, ponchos, gorp, um, a rain tarp. This was uh, what we did in every summer. And it was moments like this where you sort of understand what afternoon buildup is, how to be prepared. And the more that you can learn those things at a young age, as you then uh, move on to bigger and more daunting mountains, a lot of those skills that you've learned at a, at a young age really make uh, really come into you. But it was fortunate that this wonderful granite climbing area was uh, just around the corner, and it was here where under the great California weather, and you can improve your skills of climbing granite. And for a lot of what climbing stands for, the Yosemite and what happened there was a really key inflection point into the history of where climbing is. And so um, leading up to it, very much a colonial, imperial, landed gentry, wealth, class-based activity. And then it's sort of little that changed in England with the, the Joe Brown and the working class climbers that were there in the near Sheffield and Manchester, but it was still something like that. But then climbing comes to the United States and Yosemite, Berkeley, the Bay Area, 1967, there's like a, there's a spin that changes that. And that, it influenced everything from red point climbing, um, which is sort of, we kind of brought free climbing back to the States, and then we turned it into something, and then that went back to Europe, and then became a point where Wolfgang Gullick and his buddies, Kurt Albert, would put a red dot at the base of a climb that they'd done without artificial aid. So that was a, um, a big transition, pancake flake here up on El Cap. But it was um, initially mountaineering was get to the top of the mountain by any means possible. And so that's what this is, aid climbing, where you put in little gadgets and you stand on them and get scared and you repeat it. And you get scared and you repeat it and then you camp out. But free climbing nowadays, if you're not on, working on a free run on El Cap, you're kind of like... You're probably in your 60s, right? <laughs> but everyone's like climbing harder routes at a greater level um, because climbing is such a dynamic and, and growing uh, type of sport. But um, one of the key things on my path in climbing was that I had people that were there to show me the ropes. And so whereas with running, you can get out and you can run. And you can improve your technique and you have someone will help you with diet and training and really focus on it. But it's a very natural type of thing to do. Climbing in that same sense is, as in going up a tree or on the side of a cliff, but when we start using the ropes and equipment and all that, you quite literally have to learn how to have someone show you the ropes to learn how to do it. And so I was fortunate, Mug Stump, who uh, had moved out to Utah in 1976, was uh, he, 14 years my senior, had taken me under his wing and affirmed what I wanted to do in life and was, um, yeah, we, Utah in the 80s, as, as Boone knows, it was a, it was an amazing time. We were just sort of coming to grasp with sport climbing, American Fork was being developed, 
harder grades were being climbed. Climbing gyms were just starting to take hold. The body shop in Salt Lake was one of the original ones. And all these sort of came into um, changing how the sport has, uh, has moved over time. And so combining the skills of climbing on granite, climbing in adverse places, and then taking them up to Alaska. And so this is what climbing in 1989 Alaska looked like. We didn't wear helmets and <laughs> Muggs has knee pads to protect his knees and his trousers, but um, yeah, you wearing on a nine mil off with climbing. So there's uh, one thing that's beautiful about being outdoors is that it forces you to climb. And so when you go to a climbing gym and the roots are set with a really nice flow and you look really good and you get likes on Instagram, outdoor climbing, you thrutch, you suffer, you have awkward moves, you have underclings, you have things that you're off balance, you have ways you have to solve those. And the more that you do, the more repertoire of moves that you've done that are challenging to you, the more muscular and sort of intellectual experience you have on going into a route and, and how to approach that. And that's where the more diversity you have in climbing, the more ability you have within any of that. And it was always, um, I've always seen myself as a generalist. I enjoy all the aspects of climbing, um, from winter climbing, altitude climbing, ice climbing, cold water, a little bit of deep water soloing. They're all kind of in there. And the beauty of it is, is that the commonality is the root of gravity. And so we're interpreting different ways to play with gravity. Whereas if you play baseball, it's either baseball or softball. Four bases, a diamond, rules, set, everything like that. And we left all that behind. I was in sports, but it was like, this is crazy. Baseball, I could, I related to, but football, I was just like, now those guys are like, they're not just taunting me, they're hitting me. I'm like, I'm out of here. So put my energy into scouting. We had a, a scout master that was a Korean War vet, and he was concerned that all young men they didn't have girls and Boy Scouts in my time. But they we're all turning into a bunch of marshmallows and softies, and it was his job to toughen us up. So he, um, he got us out there, and it was a good thing to, um, to have that those moments with there but um with mugs we're always um you know finding happiness in the face of adversity we sat in a poor ledge for eight days in a storm one time and then descended down in uh, bad weather i'm using up most of our hardware and in, in the process of doing it but it wasn't uh the summit that was the experience on that it was being pinned at that ledge and there for a period of eight days and it was um the same time that the um, the Exxon Valdez uh, fuel tanker had run aground in the in the outside of Valdez, Alaska, and so it was all in the news, and it was a, a quite a turning point with that. From here, going on to um, some the other end of things, um, the desert. So this is Antarctica, and several of the trips that we launched in 1996, 97. This one here to uh, to Queen Maudland, and this is um, what ended up being silly on the cover of a magazine. But um, the um, it was mostly about the uh, the joy and being there with my climbing partner and the people that I were with. And that um, at the end of the day, that's that's really what makes it special. And 
if we think about competitive sports, we we create a field, we measure it out, and then we put a clock to it, and then we put a ball in it, and then we may have rules, and then we have etiquette, and then we have uniforms, and we have cheerleaders, and we have soap, and we have beer, and we're so, I mean, it's like, what's going on there, right? And then you see get worked up, and you're like, my team, I'm on the win. There's a lot of tension built into it. But when you go climbing, instantly when you speak belay, you have a, a language that is throughout the world that you can then communicate with. And wherever you travel, you have a community of people that you can then meet and, and, and share adventure with in, in, in that sense. And as seen from that perspective, that is a really grounding basis of why being in the outdoor business is meaningful because it, it changes the way in which we as humans interact with other humans and that's a positive thing going forward. So the double E engineer friends are like, oh, you're in outdoor recreation. <sighs> if you only had a brain, you'd be like, hey, we're changing the world for better. <laughs> so I'm not going to be working for Morton Thackall. We're going to go work for one of these different outdoor brands. But um, which is pretty good fun because if you identify this is where you want to be in life and this is what you want to do, the benefit is is that you're helping create fun and adventure for people. They're not coming to you to unload about some deep-seated trauma about not getting that ice cream cone from their cousin when they were in second grade. They're like, I want to celebrate life. Well, maybe they're working through that not getting the ice cream cone by running 100 miles. So <laughs> we'll leave that to the Psych 101 class with that. But um, the, the essence of this journey, this was a going back to Queen Maudland um, there a bunch of years later and um, organized Jimmy and Alex here with this with the team pulling it together. And it um, obviously there's quite a bit of equipment that goes into the process of this. And there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. You can be like, oh, it's sort of the tools that go into it. But the other side of it is that it's an integral part of the recreation experience. So say if you're going to think about doing a climb, they'll start out with um, the idea of it, the possibility where you might head. Um, so you'll start working out logistics, permission, financing it, getting it ready, and then you prepare the equipment. And each one of these steps leading up to when you actually go do the climb or the journey and then returning back home has its own psychological experience a profile that goes with that that then leads into the overall satisfaction of why we do it so we think well we work so we can enjoy our time off and so when we're we think about it in that way that's um it's probably the most precious thing that we can do so and which in itself is a change of how humans um look at it, it used to be it was very much work-centered. It was your work to find you, your work colleagues were who you hung out with. And nowadays, it doesn't matter where you work, it's what kind of outfit do you have? Do you have a, a ski rack on your car? Or you have like a, what kind of bumper stickers? There's a lot of, as you drive down the road here, you can kind of get an idea of what someone's recreation is. And people identify themselves by their recreation in this day and age more than they did with work a generation or two ago so um and it's all wonderful if you're into wake boating and, and that and wonderful if you're into climbing and everything like that there's um 
I just like climbing in a generic white vehicle with no stickers and being totally undercover and like, <laughs> people like, yeah, the VW van with uh, Grateful Dead stickers and Moab. In the 80s, we called that sheriff bait. <laughs> You're like, climbing's hard enough as it is. You really want to drive that down there? <laughs> it could break, but there's other things that can go on with it too. But um, Alex Honnold, perhaps the most gifted rock climber of our um, of our time and age, our Beatles picture, and then hanging above the glacier on a thread of uh, on a thread of, of uh, rope there. So. If you are in the outdoor business, yellow and red is what works with photographers. Boone's a photographer, so um, if you wear something that's that's not in there, that's a, a drab color, it's not going to have that uh, that reflection of it. But images like these, uh, courtesy of Jimmy and Sab, that uh, have loaned them to me for the slideshow, they they take people in, in like a moment to go there. So if you're used to seeing advertising for milk and yogurt and all of a sudden you see this and you're like, something's wrong there. These people are crazy. What are they doing? Um, there's something that goes on there and that's why a lot of marketing outfits from financial companies down to sugary soda pop drinks use climbing in the outdoors as a way to sell their product because one, it's out of what people's comfort house is, and, and two, there's usually some connection there. So people will be like, well, yeah, we want to see that and want to get what's in there. This was a, a brutally cold climb with Jimmy here on the getting up to the summit. Yeah, this one, we'll see if we have sound on, on this system here. Let's see this. Yeah, Jimmy, where are we? We are on the summit oh, of the Oatana, And it's about negative 30 degrees off. <laughs> this thing is. He's just saying it's epic. not that bad. He's smiling. Yep. I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I can't sound right on This is the only clip that has a little Look at this place. Moments like that where you get to look out the edge of the this world and. There it was brutally cold. There we are, happy campers on top. It's the memories that uh, bring you back in there. So, um, yeah, the uh. Story of Muggs, this is Muggs coming off that climb on the I-Tooth that we spent eight days with. And um, he had uh, had this great van. So Kinaloa soft gear, chalk bags. Who remembers Kinaloa in this audience? There's two of us. This guy, Bruce Pottinger, he had this, this ain't no Vienna roast. And that was his, his picture. He made chalk bags. and. Muggs had that put on the side of his van. <laughs> and his van still lives up in, in Seward, Alaska. <clears throat> but one of his goals was to, um, to have a go at Meru, which was this peak here, and he'd set off on that. But this is uh, 1989, so I um, was worked at the Cahill, uh, the base camp, so helping climbers as they land, get them their fuel, get them lined out. Um, this was in the 80s. There's the 
the Euros playing football with a Blazo can. Pink was really hot, fuchsia. This was sort of the outfit that we wore at the time. <laughs> a chum's hat. This is Gordy Quito, he, um, a guide. He's now um, works with the Department of the Interior in the National Park Service out of DC and, and is, uh, still advocates for being outdoors and doing good things. Seth, who was uh, a climbing buddy of all of ours here in Salt Lake and climbing the northwest face of Mount Hunter here, Seth and I on this one. But it, um, it's really, it's not that difficult. It's just maintaining, making sure you get your tent pitched and your stove going. And so <laughs> the overhang stuff is, that's what hard rock climbing, this is just, just um, keeping yourself out of harm's way as much as you can with, uh, within that. But um, another trip that, to share with on, that uh, Seth and I had done a bunch of, years previously is we'd skied in and out of the Alaska range. So rather than taking a fixed wing in, we thought we'd ski in with our clothing like that and um, with two weeks of food. And we had clipped to our backpack there, the, the shiny silver, silver thing there is our cook set. And so the theory was is that we would like make noise and scare the bears away. <laughs> of course, the sourdough at the that saw us off was like, young men, those are dinner bells. <laughs> They're just coming to you for dinner. <laughs> but this is what we set out to do was this peak middle triple and um, had a good time climbing it and suffering upon it, getting ourselves scared silly. But um, I guess that's why we go in the mountains, right? So come back and some of the uh, experiences. And it was, for both of us, it was a pretty key thing. So it was a climb that hadn't, um, it had been climbed, and then it was part of the 50 classic climbs, and it was the, the one that hadn't seen a second ascent, and it was a difficult one. So we thought we'd ski in and out just to make it more fun, which made it more fun, but it was also um, pretty interesting. And finishing up, getting back into Anchorage, before things turned green with it. So from there, next uh, set of places to visit is uh, Argentine Patagonia. So this is um, Cerritore, Torriegger, and Cerro Standhart. And so I spent four years in the 90s to climb those three peaks. Of course, they've been done in a push and then in a day. So they've been, the climbing grades have, have totally and of course, Alex Honnold did it in a day with Colin Haley. And he's like, well, I'm not really a, an ice or mountain climber. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're just a gifted climber. We'll call it that and, and, and be good with it. But um, yeah, this brand, obviously, the, uh, the skyline there of Fitzroy is the foundation of Patagonia and their brand. So it was, again, around that same time in the 60s where Sierra Designs, North Face, um, Patagonia was in Ventura, uh, Marmot. They all sort of started there in that same window of time to give people an opportunity. And within the Intermountain West, um, Hollybar, so Roy Hollybar was part of the 10th Mountain Division. He started out by importing pitons and climbing equipment from Europe for North American climbers and then started out his own uh, clothing company and sew your own and that's how I got my start was at Hoybar Mountaineering. 
and now Holly Bar has been rediscovered and it's a hipster retro brand, so which is always good. So I'm um, eventually Liker is going to become back around as a, as a retro scene. <laughs> People like, oh, I've got to put my pink Liker on here. <laughs> so, Boone, did you wear Lycra? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it has a functionality to it. So, um, yeah, the other thing that was in the 80s is that people rock climbed in dolphin shorts. And so, I don't know if that's going to make a comeback. It's kind of more baggy and blue jeansy and things like that. But, um, yeah, the uh, a lot of these images here, you can see this is um, shell outerwear, uh, Gore-Tex. This is the beginning of a where they didn't have to have a hung liner on the inside, so it was laminated onto one um, piece of fabric that went that goes with it. The uh, root, the Badlands, was like hanging around, it being all sorts of battered by the weather. So the, um, going from here to uh, Mount Everest and some stories about that and, and how that kind of uh, goes forward with it, and so. The um, view here from the wrong book side, this is uh, a, perhaps the highest permanent habitation um, on, on our planet, about 17,500 feet. And it was from here on the north side that the pioneering English expedition set out to, to go uh, climb Mount Everest. And so take a look at this and then think about how much Offer, product offering you have on on your phone. If you were to open it up and go to backcountry.com, you can get outfitted to climb Everest. And here, zippers just came onto the market. Sandy Irvin over on the very far left, he has zippers on his jacket, um, but still didn't get the button buttons up. But this is like tweed jackets with a collar. I mean, this is like, what you wear to a business formal meeting and so um and it was everything was either silk wool or uh, cotton leather boots with steel triconi nails a steel head to an ice axe and what's interesting is some of the things here this is uh the pati which is sort of like a woolen ace wrap that would then wrap around your boot so now has been replaced um this gentleman has tibetan um local boots. Um, you can see a few of the members of the exhibition chose to wear those boots um, as they gave them more comfort in, 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 within, that, uh, within that. But they didn't have anything that was specifically designed to mountain climbing. So they were using welder's goggles to protect themselves from the sun. They were adapting um, sisal rope and bamboo um, to uh, to build things out, and then we can see here, traveling on the glacier, they had their their pith helmets, and um, this is kind of the the look of it. And it, it 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 makes us chuckle because they they were they looked very proper. And so there's probably I mean I put a jacket on maybe four or five times a year, and I always feel a little tickled about it. But think about climbing the highest point on the planet, um, probably not the case, but. Already 1953, the first ascent by Ed Hillary and Tenzin Norgay. Um, we can see here how things had changed. So Second World War, as um, we were talking about in the beginning of the presentation, was a huge flywheel of innovation, uh, similar to what the moon launch was, and that there was needs um, in mountains. So the 10th Mountain Division 
it was sort of the source of many of the ski areas and, and mountain people, but also in a sense uh, for, for product and innovation with that. So their oxygen apparatus, um, they, they've been sort of um, cross-pollinated from the uh, aircraft technology and places like that. And then <clears throat> the um, still sort of the, the knit wool and sweater and, and that, uh, that what, what the joy of that looks like. These next series of photos are from the 1963 expedition from the United States, and they had a, a massive group of people that would assisted them to carry their material up into the mountains and crossing over bridges and everything along those lines. What's interesting is in these photographs now of Nepali people, the type of clothing they had there would be was referred to as homespun. So they would they would get their own cotton. It was a big thing that Gandhi had when, when they succeeded from England in 1947 was to not purchase cloth that was made with Indian cotton and then processed in, in the UK and then brought back. And that everyone would home spin their, their own clothing with that and as, as a sign of independence. So even on a very small sense, there's clothing has a, uh, a political statement. We just think about the previous first lady and the jacket she thought appropriate to wear at, at a certain thing. And if you think clothing isn't political, think about that one moment. But um, yeah, the, none of the climbs in the Himalayas would be possible without the assistance of the indigenous people that live there. Um, they, for centuries, have been part of these mountains. In many cases, they're a deity, um, so they're sacred, and as guests, we respect the mountain um, as we come into it and sort of have that um, in that same way. So this um, next little clip here is a um, time-lapse photography. And perhaps if there's anything about Jobs Day for all of you in outdoor recreation is that there really isn't any specific, like you're gonna become a, a radiologist or a cardiologist, a subspecialty. There's so many different ways that you can find a way to make a living in the outdoors. And this is in the sciences using um, repeat historical repeat photography. So this clip here is, we'll go for a second. This is the Kumbu Icefall and photographs are taken a half hour. The sunshade line there is, is, is the seasonal and you can see how fast this ice fall is moving. And from a, um, watch it again, from a geologic standpoint, it's, this is geomorphology. And so by using this sort of information is a way to then figure out where the climbers would then go into the route and how to work through that. So pretty interesting part. The um, avalanche that took place in uh, 2015 affected this area right in there where the um, where that window is, um, and then where it came down from the top there, and then a more uh, specific. And so this is the most dangerous part of climbing Everest is that you're walking through this moving river of ice that is incredibly dangerous. And if you don't know what it is, and you're like, oh, it's fine, but if you know how dangerous it is, it, it definitely makes you think twice. <clears throat> The challenges um, you know, on these big mountains is overcrowding. Um, here's an example here. This photograph from 2012. 
Um, again, people going from Camp 3 down here up towards the Lotse face and see the amount of people on there. And then this is um, from two years ago, a photograph that I borrowed um, looking at the Hillary step. And the, um, the challenge with this is that everything has a carrying capacity. And you have to, any discussion that begins with how we manage people, you have to understand that everything has a carrying capacity. There, you can't put more than a, a pint of water in a pint of water's glass. You can't put more people in a canoe or it'll capsize. And so once we understand that, then we can start looking at it. And so how do they manage a mountain like this? To date, there really isn't any management from the Nepali um, uh, Tourism Department and Civil Aviation. Uh, they need to have a comprehensive carrying capacity study, similar to what has been done on Denali, where they figure they have 1,600 climbers a year. Here, There's, if you have the $12,000 for your permit, you, you can go climb. And then there's no regulation of the guiding outfits at the base, nor is there any way of vetting the skills of the people that come here. And so before I went to go climb in the Himalayas, I had to climb in Yosemite, and I climbed in Mount Rainier, and then I climbed in the Alaska Range, and I went to a 6,000 meter peak, and then I, and now it's like, hey, I'm gonna climb Everest and K2, and sort of, um, and, and be assisted with it, and, and, and do have a good time with it. But it, it, um, it puts undue burden on the people that are with you, and especially for, the indigenous people, the ones that are doing the work up there to get people up and down safely. It's a pretty important thing. And for a country like Nepal, which is a small landlocked nation of about 29 million people, in this geopolitical vice between India to the south, China to the north, and they've never been a, they were never a, a colony of any one nation. So there's a very fierce independent nature to the Nepali people. But tourism is probably 12% of the economy. Uh, the first largest is foreign remittance. So laborers, predominantly young men, that go to Southeast Asia to build electronics or to work in construction buildings in the, in the Mideast. And that foreign remittance is followed by tourism. And so there, for this, the fellow here, you know, obviously the Sherpa fellow is the guide and the, and the client is, is there. And, realizing his dream to sit on top of the world, frozen and, and miserable. <laughs> the fun comes afterwards, right? <laughs> Roller coasters are fun while you, while, you, while you enjoy them, but afterwards climbing is like, oh, I did that. And there was um, a lot of those on that. But it, um, the, the challenge is that the, um, the, the tourism, mountain tourism in, in a lot of these places is, um, it's a real something that we need to address. And so, while specifically we're looking at design for clothing and everything like that, there's a lot of policy that also goes into um, outdoor um, recreation. How do we, how does one person's enjoyment and, and how is, is that, how do we put things, intangible things like view shed, aesthetic value, um, is into how many people we have in there. And it's, it's the biggest challenge because we started out the conversation with the manner in which people communicate with each other. It's, it's healthy, it's uplifting, but then if we get more people out there, it's going to create conflict within that. And that's, um, we see that now with um, the requirement to um, have reservations for national park services, um, campgrounds with that. And 
which is it's a management tool, but from my perspective, each time you you add a layer like that, you exclude more and more people. And that the national parks are, to quote the documentarian Ken Burns, America's greatest idea. And we're fortunate we've had that opportunity there, but that they should be, that as a citizen, that the $80 I have to pay is a subsidiary tax to go to the national parks. I'd rather see that as we're not having to, to go into that and that they're there and they're open for all people to come enjoy them and welcome them. A little bit of my two cents there. So, But um, the last bunch of slides here, and then we'll go to some Q&A with it, um, are the real big challenge, which is, um, is climate change. And this is the Taku Glacier. And the uh, I like humble oil. <laughs> I'm like, well, we're going to be like the we're going to be the chillest of all energy companies. And they were like being honest in advertising. We're going to melt seven million tons of ice. And we didn't understand the the complexity of carbon. Um, we see that here. This is from the coal is clean. This is the um, the, the the disinformation site from the the, the coal lobby. Um, and it's a challenging thing. I live in Montana. We have a tremendous amount of coal reserves, and they, they fuel the lifestyle that we all love. But the challenge is, is the CO2 that's building up. And so I speak to this because it's something that, if you're not aware of it, then you're, you cannot be not aware of it after today. But if you are thinking about it, it's something that, that goes into it. And this um, thermographic map here, you can see the time frame up there, and this is the average temperatures. And I think back to 30, 40 years ago when Boone and I were youngsters here and what the ice climbing season in Utah was like. We, would, we had Thanksgiving to Easter, and now there'll be like two windows if you get a 72-hour cold snap, and then it'll freeze up, and then it'll come back around to it. But again, this, um, this, is, this is data. This isn't like an opinion piece in the New York Times or the Washington Post about it. It's like, this is what's happening, and then this is um, the CO2 there. So it's something that um, that I take seriously because it affects the recreation that I, that I have with it, but it's also from a, um, a standpoint in um, the, uh, in, uh, let's see, that one, that one's, let's see if I can build that one out. There we go. Um, the, uh, from a, a standpoint of, of how we look at it. So this is Columbia Glacier, and this is only up until 2012. And so we can see how it's moving there. Um, the same outfit, extreme ice survey, time-lapse cameras. You used to have to do that with a cassette. And, and the, the Austin Post, who was one of the first glaciologists, would, would sit in his photo hut and he'd like set his timer, go click a picture, have another cup of tea, click another picture. And now with digital technology, we have this, which is, is science and data that goes into it. And we can see um, the Columbia Glacier and how far it's receding and retreating and it, having to reset this. And so um, there's, I shared this video with Senator Lisa Murkowski. She's from Alaska, the one senator from a polar state. And I was like, yeah, so anthropogenic triggered climate change, is it real? She was like, yes, it's real. 
which is good. And so she's working to change things on that. But the um, you see how, how dramatic it has gone so far back, and it's almost back to where the, the three, uh, three of them come in, and all this adds to um, the um, overall rise. So this is in Chamonix, the, the, the ocean of ice, um, and that was a historic postcard, and this is uh, where it is today. And it's even, having gone skiing there <clears throat> in 92, the, the ski routes that that we had skied, or they're, they're not exhibited, uh, they're not around there anymore. Last uh, image here, a cartoon from the uh, cartoonist Joel Pett. So you always look them up. But, <laughs> but see, we can, we're, we're going to get these things if we do the right thing with this. So there's always um, to think forward with that. So it, um, it's 10 to 5, more or less. We're going to put it out to you for questions. You won't be graded. There is no true-false. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. So due to climate change, are you seeing routes that you've done in the past that are maybe seeing their last percent? Yeah. Um, due to climate change, are the routes that have changed. So probably the best example is the Ogre, which was climbed in the 70s by Doug Scott and Chris Bonington. And the route that they went up just doesn't exist anywhere. So. Um, the Fearn line, which is where snow accumulates above and then melts below, and has moved up approximately oh, 400 to 1,000 meters in the Himalayas, depending on the aspect and where they are in the range. So that's a real bellwether um, that we can. It's, things are hotter. We need to look at Lake Powell, Lake Mead. I mean, they're the, in the Great Salt Lake, and the challenge is that. Your community is now facing with that, so there's it's all connected. Good question. Um, I'm sorry, my 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 question is not about climbing. Oh, that's fine. It doesn't have to be about climbing. Anything. Um, <laughs> is there a famous climber, past, future, future, or present that you would like to, if you had the chance to spend an evening with, who would it be? Oh gosh, there. Well, past climber, I would think of like Ertzti, who was that the fellow like I was entombed in the ice five thousand years ago. Who's like, what was life about? Where were you going? And things like that. But um, you know, contemporary, the late Jeff Lowe, who's from this part of the country, and his innovation uh, from technique uh, in terms of ice climbing, and then also with product, hard goods, packs, and really a. Um, a polymath in the outdoor space uh, from his climbs that he was able to do and then the product he was able to develop. Please? Um, so I think you have spent a lot of years and like as years like it's changing and evolving. What are like a few things that you look for when you're trying out new stuff? Things I look out when I'm trying new stuff. So um, I'll, I'll take that back a little bit. Two really key things that changed climbing. One was the spring load camming device. So the friend and the original one, the Camelot and aliens, a lot of those, those really changed how we were able to protect. And the other one was um, a, an auto assist belay device. So think of the Grigri. And both those two tools really changed how climbing is. Rubber kind of came along incrementally, becoming more sticky and better fit with the shoes. So those, those two were like fundamental changes. Where we are now in the outdoor business, it's pretty mature. So 
um, its performance in fabric. So working with fabric suppliers, um, now a, a big part of the ask of the fabric supplier is how, how sustainable is that fabric process. So I spent two weeks in Taiwan touring factories, dyeing facilities, and going through how product is made. And it's, it's chemical and energy intensive. And so the more that we're able to do that with less of it and to have to recycle um, the, the chemicals that we use, the energy that goes into them on that. So that, um, but it's probably fit is the first one. And then the, the feel, the hand, the fabric has. Um, is it UV protectant upon you? Um, is it woven? Is it knit? What are your, what do you need it for? Soft shells certainly have a place. Cotton clothing's great for rock climbing. You'll want wind shell protection in, in a colder place. So, but functionality and then, um, again, it, people want, you want something that says something about yourself. So when we think about it, if you have from Gore-Tex, the waterproof certificate, they put a mannequin, the product on a mannequin, and they put it in this huge artificial shower chamber and the sensors, if it passes, then they get that. So you, all the brands that work with Gore-Tex have a, a very comparable level of, of quality. Same thing with climbing ropes and the milk we buy in the stores. There's a certain level of quality we've come to accept. So it's how you identify with that brand sort of as a decision making. Please? What do you think the most Physically demanding. Uh, the Meru clip, trip was uh, technically demanding and it required more and it was more fun, but climbing Everest is just like, just like lay down in a wet sleeping bag and have a giant hit you with a rubber mallet for, <laughs> just, there's nothing, it's just a suffer fat, it's just miserable. It's like you're climbing a wall, you're like, ah, oh, there's a cool move and like it's airy. This is like walking up a ski hill and breathing through a straw and getting hit over the head with a wet towel. <laughs> But if you like it, you're going to have fun. <laughs> so, three times on Everest. So, lucky to be done with that. <laughs> um, after working with North Face for like for however long, yeah, is the like relationship with other outdoor companies pretty civil, or is it pretty like taboo on like? each person, like each company. Yeah, great question. Is. Yeah, yeah, so very, a great question here from, um, you know, how we interact with it. And it's a really good community. So first off, we all share the same customers. So the people that come into the outdoor shop to purchase a raincoat or a carabiner or a fishing outfit, they all share the same customers. They'll share the same retail partners. They might share the same wholesalers. They'll share same fabric vendors, factories. A lot of people work within the companies. And so North Face has always been a farm team for the larger outdoor industry. Mountain Hardware was an offshoot of their talent that had split out in the 80s. Um, and everyone works within it. And Boone and I have known each other for 40 years in the business. And so people will always, um, yeah, they'll move between different companies and it's really, um, it, it, it's a good, healthy, yeah, I wouldn't know what it was like between like a convention with software programmers, like you can't go right for them or, <laughs> I have no idea. Please in the back. Um, I just am curious, like I think you do 
Uh, I haven't tried K2. In K2, it, um, it's a little more difficult than, um, but again, now it, this season, they climb midsummer, and so it's now um, this unique style of high altitude fixed rope climbing, which is Sherpa assisted um, fixed rope, oxygen camps. It's its own type of climbing, and it, it's become its own branch of the tree of climbing. And so we can't compare that to alpine climbing or anything like that. So, um, yeah, the, there's a few of the 8,000 meter peaks that are sought after. So, Manaslu and um, Choyu is currently closed off because it's in Tibet, but that offer a goal for people to, to go there. But yeah, I had plans, but I'll just enjoy a postcard image of K2. <laughs> Please, in the far back. I wish I, um, I, I've got to get back up to Montana tomorrow, and um, but always, always I, the best part of the trade show being here is you can escape work and go to Ferguson Canyon after work or go ski touring at night. or So yeah, there's always no shortage of climbing here. And Boone's route super tweak was the first 8C in North America, just up the canyon here. And, Still brutally hard, right, Boone? <laughs> That's like little micro edges. <laughs> so, please, in the far back. Yeah, I just want to ask you guys from, you know, where a lot of us are, sport climbing up the canyon and like snowboarding and skiing and stuff, to becoming a mountaineer and working with different outdoor companies as professional climbers and professional photographers or whatever it is. What's your advice of the best path to get there? Like well, yeah. I there's like Alex Honnold, like, and Chris Sharma. They're like the two pro climbers. Lynn Hill. I mean, they got paid to go climbing, and Chris now runs his business and everything like that. But the rest of us, we've pieced together work. I've worked with a raincoat sleeping bag company for three decades, and so whether you're a photographer or you're a campground host or a product developer, you're in the outdoor business within that. And so um, do what speaks to you and um, when you're happy, you'll, you'll do good things. Um, good things will come from that. So spend more time. There's a, one person back here that I'd miss. I'll come around, yeah? Oh, why are you not talking about Mary? Oh, well, I can pull that gun. Yeah. Maybe because there's a movie on Netflix or something. <laughs> yeah, there, it, was a, it was what I'd spent my life pulling my skills together to go do. So, But yeah, maybe I forgot something today. <laughs> we'll get someone else back here had a question. Yes? So I saw it to your father. I would love to know what you would tell your future generation of like how like are you getting them into adventure like you or um sorry just trying to think how i'm afraid what would you want to tell the future generation about the outdoors? oh okay yeah um there's plenty of employment so if this is what you want to do you can find a way to um to work within it and so take care of the the resources that are out there whether they're the fabric and aluminum we make the toys with or the the um the natural places we go enjoy them at so there's um but yeah there uh 
And if you go out with your kids, they're going to grouse for the first 30 minutes and then they'll have fun. So like you're just doing this. You have no choice. So a little bit of like guidelines and structure are good for kids. <laughs> you're going to get outdoors, please. Uh, maybe I'll see a couple of questions. First one is what piece of gear would you have the longest that you still use today? And then the second question is maybe a little more secure, but uh, often you talk about People talk about climbing and mountaineering in a physical way, or the toll it has, or the glory that it can be, and even in a mental and even emotional way. But I remember one of your interviews talking about when you and Jimmy Chair climbed up, and one of the locals there had given you like a mantra to, to speak when you were going up. Yeah. Growing up, you thought mountains yeah. a sacred thing for me too. Yeah. But, so I wonder what what is it that makes mountains sacred to you personally? Yeah, so the um, the first bit, some gear that I um, keep with me, there's mostly like jackets and raincoats and climbing harnesses and climbing ropes. That they're kind of fuel. They're fuel for adventure. So if I'm not burning through climbing gear, I'm not having adventures with that. So there's, um, but I have like, this is an old carabiner that, I keep old carabiners around just to, this is the blind oval, you never, it was always, but there, are, I mean, this will certainly work with it in this day and age with that, but um, I have a pair of glacier glasses and a nose flap that I've had now since 30 years, 1992, and I still use, I mean, they still do the job, so, and then mountains is a spiritual place. Um, all of the world's great religions have a connection to mountains and mountain tops, um, whether it's Greyhorn Butte, otherwise known as Devil's Tower here in South Dakota, or um, uh, Mount Uluru, which is Irish Rock in Australia, or Mount Fuji for the Shinto, um, Machu Puchari for the Tibetan Buddhists. Um, so they are in Shivling, Meru for the Hindu. So they're, all the world's religions have some sort of connection to it um, and coming back from Mount Sinai and, and the, the good news that, that came from that so there's always a um, but it's always the seeing the mountains as a place to that are restorative and regenerative to the human personality I think that's what we all seek in that because we live in a very oversubscribed high pace so it's like a pretty it's a pretty crazy world that we live in. And when we go outside and we're, there's no longer glass, steel, concrete, plastic, every tree is unique, every creek is unique, that moment of being able to be outside gives us a chance to come back, ready to plug back into this oversubscribed reality of the United States in the 21st century. <laughs> so, please? Um, what solutions would you like to see to climate change on like, a global scale when there's industrial nations, um, especially in like, the Far East, that are not as willing to get on board and don't have like, EPA or any sort of regulation on it, especially when those countries are producing a lot of our goods and their materials and things that we demand from them, but then we're expecting them to put regulations on how they produce yeah. it is the biggest challenge that we're facing and your question if hopefully the audience was able to understand it but yeah it's quite a bit of um 
We're 4% of the world's population. We use about 25% of the world's resources. And the rest of the world wants the lifestyle that we have. We want to be able to drive a Starbucks and get a, with a plastic dome and full of sugar, whatever they call those things. And they want to have some good climbing shoes. and new, I mean, so we can't fault them for seeking that, that lifestyle. And then as they come online to a more developed nation and more energy intensive, a lot of the things that go into the products that we enjoy we're not paying the full price we've externalized the burden to the environment by going with places where there are no environmental regulation so environmental regulation is a market externality that the government is asking us to to abide by so we have a better world collectively in the long run and a lot of people they chafe. They go like, no one's going to tell me what to do with anything in my life. My life is my life. And you can't be telling me this. So we have to understand that our actions where we are today are going to, to change that. So, um, and for the next 200 years, we're, we need to figure out this transition from a carbon-based economy to these other energy sources that, that, are, that are there. And, and that offer potential. So geothermal is an example of one that has huge potential. So if you like that, solar and wind to get to scale, it's going to take a lot of good land out of what could be um, productive land for farming and agriculture. And we're, we, as we know now, the lithium, the cobalt, the ion that goes into batteries comes at a great um, course within it. But probably the first step is recognizing that we are in a problem, <laughs> like the planet's overheating, and then two, that, that it is anthropogenic and that we can work towards those things. The Inflation Reduction Act, which just went through, is, has $397 billion that go into addressing climate change. And this is something that we desperately needed to get behind and get to do. And so when we incentivize these other ways that we can do it until we have a, a price on carbon and that is then works out on a, on a global scale, it's, it's challenging. It is. And especially when we're leaders like the United States. So we're, we still, our secondary education system, which you are part of, is still the best in the world. We, by the abstract measure of, or concrete measure of PhDs that are awarded um, and patents that go to it, that eight of the top 10 schools in the United States. And so if we can harness this innovation, this creativity, the free spirit that is, we all, cherish and is so much a part of the American dynamic that we can put it towards what is this generation's moonshot to address things. Please? It's easy to glamorize working in the outdoor product field, but I wonder if you, for what challenges have you faced with having kind of your profession and your passion merge or secure space? Yeah. Um, the, the worst part of it is, is non-sequential death. So. When grandma, grandpa dies, yeah, same thing with your dog dies. We're, we're prepared for that. We kind of understand it. But when you lose someone in doing something for fun, it, there's a lot of psychological burden with that. And it's, yeah, I'm, my life is 
what it is and they're I do my own personal climbing trips and they're they are what they are when I do a professional climbing trip there's media involved and it's like showing up to play a baseball game but I'm letting the next generation do that <laughs> I'm just about just go bouldering and climbing please is there a story behind the little logo the little logo <laughs> yeah yeah I, the um the Jolly Roger so they're uh yeah, we did a collection with the uh, Hold Fast All Storms Pass and with our off mountain. So it wasn't like the Super Summit series with the zipper garages and the super lightweight. It was just like a black down jacket with a skulls and crossbones on it <laughs> for 350 bucks as opposed to 700 bucks. And so we sold the heck out of them. But it was a lot of it is branding and logo, and that's what. Um, you know, as you work in the product field, you'll get to understand that. A few more questions? Uh, when it comes to gear, do you like bells and whistles, or are you looking for like simplicity? Bells and whistles or simplicity? Probably simplicity. If it doesn't serve the purpose of... For me, a car gets me to the trailhead. If it gets me there safe, it's fine, but more than that, so... But in, with climbing gear and stuff, yeah, keep it simple and enjoy nature more. Yep. Uh, when you're like the hammer's coming down and like your gear sitting in the tent for eight days waiting for a storm to pass, or like you're you're fighting tooth and nail on a mountain, like what, where does your mind go? Like, oh, like where? How do you remember? <laughs> yeah, I think about like these worst case scenarios. So. You, um, Shackleton and his team for 17 months being out at the end of the world. The untold stories of humans struggling and, and getting through things. And so we're, we're a lot stronger than what we think we are. So I always keep the, the story of Shackleton or some of these people that marched across the mountain ranges and keep that kind of in my mind and I fold it up so if I miss a flight or I get ketchup on my jacket, I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. I could be eating seal blubber. <laughs> so. Um, so I was listening to Alex Arnold's Climb Gold. Yeah. And they were talking about mental health for climbing community. And is there anything you'd like to see that can change in Yeah. Um, the, the big one is when there's loss and then, you know, support together and, and, and work through that and have someone that understands grief and that can be, that can help you out with that as a professional is a good thing. And, um, but there, uh, I don't think there's anything more than what we see in normal society. So the same level of anxiety or anything like that might be in there. But for a lot of people, Getting outdoors and, and going for climbing is, is is good help. It's good. I know on a personal level, if I'm stressed out to to go out and get three or four body lengths above the ground and clipping gear and I don't yeah everything else is like gone. I got to survive. I'm like most ancient part of my brain is kicking into gear. I'm not thinking about. Tenant, my visa bills and do in two days. Just <laughs> make sure I transfer money there. <laughs> I just want to pay the forty dollars late fee. You know that sort of crap. You're like, I'm gonna send a mover. I'm gonna bring my ankles. Ah, got it. So you come back and try it a little bit stronger. So, two more questions and then we'll be 
ice cream hour, right? Yes, please. Uh, what's your plan for your next great adventure? Next great adventure. So um, I go to Nepal in October 3rd to visit friends and to not to climb anything specifically, but um, probably just being part of the climbing community, working with people. Um, I, I love climbing gyms. That's my social connection where I go at, at home. Um, my peer group, it's, we go, we catch up. We don't have to go to a bar or anything and do some climbs and you're there. And so that, the, what climbing gyms are and the growth and, and that potential and, and how myself and my peers that, are, that have this knowledge and how can we share what we do outdoors and take that same ethos and understanding and bring it into the climbing gym. There's a lot of people who will be like, oh, I saw a Red Bull ad, I'm going to the climbing gym. Whereas for, I started out, it was like, oh, you gotta go, go backpacking, you gotta know what a, how to tent, you know, put your, stake out your tent, you know, it's like, there go all these layers of, of outdoorness till you got to climbing. And now it's like, boom, you're in climbing day one. So transferring that knowledge to uh, climbing gyms. Please? Just the same. Well, um, on a day like today, travel. So I purchased carbon offset for all my airfare. Um, we carpooled up in an electric vehicle, so we're trying. Um, but uh, but on a base, uh, you know, try to ride your bike as much as you can, and not to. Um, it's it's difficult because we're we can't let. Perfect, get in the way of good. We, we're not going to be perfect at this, but we have to try. And so that, like, well, saying that if, unless you're perfect and you like drink out of bamboo straws and like, you know, you're like miraculously no carbon in your life, then you have to admit that you have an impact on the planet. So, yeah. Oh yeah, good question. The importance of a mentor, someone that um, one can show you what's going on to teach you the, the carabiners and the clips and everything like that. But moreover, someone that affirms your choice of where you're going in life. And so that, from a professional standpoint, and it doesn't need to be every second Thursday at 4 p.m. It can be as simple as meeting someone at the cliff and being like, "Yeah, you got that," or a setting like this where you're like, "Yeah." Conrad turned 60 in two months and he still works in the business. I have hope. <laughs> Even though your grandmother might be like, <clears throat> ah, you know, engineering. <laughs> Far back, please. Yeah, I just have a follow-up question. Um, so, what's the connection for you between the outdoor industry and the commercial industry? You know, like, wanting to start a brand or that kind of stuff. Like, what's the connection between taking your passion? And finding new ways to create and to create an industry or create a business where you can draw people into the outdoor industry products. Yeah. So coming out with something new is not really gonna happen. I mean we're we're making micro 
advancements in product and technology. Look at the cooler segment, and Yeti was a breakthrough story because they made a cooler that was strong enough to stand on. And so they moved the price up and they changed the rest of the, the business with that. But if you have a product in mind that it's that's something that is functional and has utility for the end consumer. So um, marketing-driven stories for innovation, I'm like, that's like my chief number one rubber mallet. No, we're not doing that. And that is where you're like, well, we're going to put these bells and whistles on our coat and tell people that they need them because it's a great, and you're like, well, it's a t-shirt. <laughs> Three holes, four holes on the bottom or whatever you put it on. So you can, there's always that, um, so that's, but learn from other, um, other people. And when you're young, um, go work for a big shop and learn how they go about working with their product, understand what accounts payable, accounts receivable are, and how essential that is to a successful business. So you understand that on there. Um, and wake up in the morning and have fun, be motivated. <laughs> last question, or are we on to Chase here? I saw a handbook, so let's do that last one. Oh yeah. All right, one more question. Um, so uh, for us looking to get into the element, like what you do, what yeah. would be a good place to start up? Like, like we've done rock climbing, we've done snowboarding. Yeah. Like, what would be a good place? I'd start out um, ice climbing in the winter. And so um, the gray white icicles move through that and then climb Stairway to Heaven, go down to Santa Quinn, there's, go up north. There's good ice climbing is, is training for that. And then come springtime when the conditions are good, you can try some more alpine climbing where you have neve and snow. And then from there, take those skills, maybe go to the North Cascades or the Alaska Range or South America or the Himalayas. So just go out and do it every weekend. Don't get hurt. <laughs> so, algo mas de nada. Thanks for listening to the Highlander Podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.